Amen. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 8. I'm going to uh, acknowledge on the front end, I have a little bit of fear this morning. My fear is that this, uh, this message could take up all of your Mother's Day lunch. It's going to be a little different uh, approach than we typically take. This I'm not sure I've ever preached this kind of message. I'm going to try not to shift into seminary mode uh, because, as, as you'll see once we get into it, this has... A lot of uh, attraction to shift into seminary pre-teaching mode. Uh, and my fear is that for some of you, I'm not going to go technically far enough t- as much as you would want. And for some of you, it's already way too technical. And uh, you'll see what, see what we mean as we go. Anyway, with that wonderful introduction, uh, let me read. I'm going to start actually in verse 53 of chapter 7 of John and read through verse 11 of chapter 8. Here's what we read, at least in my Bible. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, sorry, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, And with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. So this is a wildly popular section of the scripture. If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you know this story, and, and even non-Christians know this story, the woman caught in, a, in adultery. Uh, we know this well. Uh, the leaders, as the story unfolds here, have caught this woman in the very act of adultery, which makes you scratch your head and say, how exactly did that happen? And where's the guy? He is just as guilty of adultery as she is, so why is it just the woman that they bring to Jesus? And the law, the Mosaic law, required that she and he be executed for their adultery. 
So the, the Pharisees and the scribes have set Jesus up here. Are you going to condemn this woman? Are you going to affirm the law of Moses? Or Mr. Grace, Mr. Love, are you going to turn over the law of Moses and not condemn her? They're looking for some reason to accuse him because, as we have seen throughout John recently, they want to execute him. They want to put him to death. So they're hoping he will say something in response to this that they can say, aha, he's not upholding the law of Moses. We can execute this man. So what does Jesus do? He doodles in the dirt. Right? Whenever you're pressed with a hard question, just get out and start doodling in the dirt. Worked out pretty good for Jesus here. And that raises one big question. What question does it raise? Was he writing? Right? He's doodling. And they keep firing questions at him. Hey, Jesus, what do you, what do we, what do you say? What are we supposed to do with this woman? And he stands up and says something, and then he gets back and starts writing again in the dirt. And one by one, all of these accusers walk away. Which some have speculated that what Jesus was writing in the dirt was the sins of those scribes and Pharisees. Right? You've got this thief over here who's accusing this woman and Jesus writes down embezzlement. You know, $154 stolen from the treasury. And that Pharisee goes, oh, that's me, I'm out of here. Right? We don't know. We don't know. What did Jesus say? He said, whichever one of you has not committed sin, you go ahead and pick up the stone to execute this woman. He doesn't actually reject the law's teaching, but he says, all right, go ahead if you're going to enact this. Uh, go ahead if you're without sin and do this. Of course, they all left. Jesus is left here with a woman. He says, where are your accusers? And she says, they've gone. He says, great, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. That's the story. If you were a Christian who received John's first letter, remember we've talked about this over and over again. John wrote this in around 85 AD, some 50 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And his primary target audience uh, was Jews who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, and he wanted to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. So he wrote this book, what we call the Gospel of John. And he sent it to people. Presumably, he wanted Jewish, Jewish people to read it. So if you were one of those original Jews, and you could read Greek, and you received this book that we call the book of John, if you were one of those folks in the first century, you would not have read this story that I just read to you. Follow that? If you were living in the first century and received the original copy of John's letter here, this woman caught in adultery, you would not have read that story in the first century. In fact, if you were a Greek speaker in the second century, you wouldn't have read that story. Or in the third century, possibly even the fourth century, you would have not read that story. Because this story does not occur in the oldest Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that we have. 
Uh, it doesn't show up until the, possibly the 5th or the 6th century. Look at your Bibles. How many of your Bibles have this section completely missing in your Bible? Nobody? Doesn't the NIV skip this? No? Nobody use the NIV? Oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> how many of you have brackets around it? How many of you have a footnote? Yes. Almost every New Testament these days will have a footnote, a bracket, an asterisk, or some other marker indicating that this story is not in the earliest and best manuscripts. How many of you have ever heard of Bruce Metzger? Some of you? Good. Uh, this is what John Piper said about Bruce Metzger. He is one of the world's great authorities on the text of the New Testament until his death in 2002. Bruce Metzger uh, was a scholar among scholars. He's the kind of guy that you only read if you have to, or you go to seminary, or you're a nerd. Here's what Bruce Metzger said about uh, this story of the, the adulterous woman. The story of the woman taken in adultery has all the earmarks of historical veracity. See, that's... That's why you read them if you're a nerd. Has all the earmarks of historical veracity. Abby, do you know what veracity means? Somebody does. Who said that, Martha? Yes. I, I was going to call her Martha, but I figured she would tell me anyway. What does it mean, Martha? Truth. Has all the marks of historical truth. It sounds like a true story. But, he says, it must be judged to be an intrusion into the fourth gospel. D.A. Carson, who if you've been paying attention over the years, you know that D.A. Carson, in my opinion, is the most important theologian of the 20th and 21st century. He said this, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. Another New Testament scholar that's of high repute, his name is Leon Morris, he said in his commentary on John, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. Those are strong words. He's saying when you weigh the evidence, it is impossible to look at this story as authentic in John's gospel. The question is, why? Why is it impossible for that to be the case? Let me go over a few reasons with you. This is all taken from Metzger. I have a copy here of Bruce Metzger's book called The, uh, the Text of the New Testament, It's Transmission, Corruption, and Restoration. Uh, it's actually for this kind of a scholar, this is pretty readable. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to find it readable, but for this kind of scholar, it's pretty readable. And uh, if you want to get a copy of it, you're you're welcome to look at mine and, uh, and copy it down, but uh, you don't get to have my copy. Because one of these days, people are going to decide it's not worth having it, and I want to have my copy around. So here are five reasons why Metzger says the adulterous woman passage doesn't belong in our Bible. Number one, it's missing from the best Greek manuscripts. The New Testament was written in Greek. We'll come back to this and explain this a little bit further in a few moments, but uh, the Greek manuscripts that are closest in time 
to the apostles, and the manuscripts that are closest in geography to the apostles, and the manuscripts that scholars have determined are most likely to represent what the apostles wrote, not until the 5th or 6th century do we have this story in the Greek text of John. So, and I'll explain more about that as we go, but the best manuscripts don't have it. Number two, none of the Greek fathers include it until the 12th century. Greek fathers, that may mean nothing to some of you. Uh, the earliest preachers and teachers and theologians and the, the men who, who led churches and who preached and who wrote about the, the, the New Testament teaching, uh, they're called the, the church fathers. Guys like uh, St. Augustine, maybe you've heard that name, um, uh, Origen, Athanasius, some of those guys, and, and there are plenty of others. They're, they're divided into two groups, the Greek fathers and the Latin fathers. Now, those of you with lightning minds will quickly discern why some are called Greek fathers and some are called Latin fathers. Anybody want to venture a guess? Because they either spoke and wrote in Greek or they spoke and wrote in Latin. See? Brilliant. Scholarship is, uh, is really helpful here. So the, the Latin fa fathers, some of them have uh, talk about this in the 4th and 5th and 6th century. But on the Greek side, those who only spoke and wrote in Greek or primarily did, they don't even mention this story until the 12th century A.D., including those like Origen and Chrysostom. You might know who Origen or Chrysostom is. You might know what Chrysostom stands for, what, what that name means. Martha? No? Silver tongue. He was a great preacher, apparently. And he preached on the entire New Testament, but he skips right over the adulterous woman in his sermons. The first guy on the Greek fathers who mentions this is a guy named... Some of you uh, mothers who are pregnant might want to write this down. His name is Eumithius Zygabenus. <laughs> put that down. You might want to put that in the rotation as you're pondering, uh, pondering baby names. Euthypius Zygabenus. He finally references in the 12th century this story of the adulterous woman and says, but the best Greek manuscripts don't include it. But he goes ahead and preaches it anyway. When we do start having copies of the New Testament with this story in it, there's an asterisk by it in those copies, indicating that uh, there's something unusual about it. Here's another interesting fact. Look in your Bibles right now to John chapter 7, verse 36. Do any of you have the woman caught in adultery starting in John chapter 7, verse 36. You don't, right? Some of the Greek manuscripts put it right there, okay? Other Greek manuscripts put it after verse 44 of chapter 7. Some of the Greek manuscripts put it after chapter 21, verse 24. And some of them put it at Luke 21, 38. So it's all over the place. Three of the occurrences, four of the occurrences are in John. One of them is in Luke. And so men who study these things look at all these Greek manuscripts and say, well, sometimes it's here, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's in Luke. They read it, and, and here's where if you don't speak Greek, uh, read Greek, it doesn't help you, but 
the terminology, the phrasing, the way that the story is told in the Greek doesn't sound like the rest of John. And so for all those reasons, they say it just isn't there. The last point that Metzger makes is if you look at chapter 7, verse 52, we covered this last week, where they answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. It seems like the same discourse continues in chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light. So the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself, and your testimony is not true. And he goes back and forth, and Jesus repeats a lot of the things he's already said. I am the light of the world. I, where I'm going, you can't come after me. You don't know me because you don't know the Father. All the same things that he said in chapters 6 and 7. It seems like it's one long discourse. And so to put the woman caught in adultery here breaks up uh, the the. the dialogue. Uh, that's why Messer calls it an intrusion. It, it doesn't seem to belong there. So those are the reasons that uh, Bruce Metzger uh, says that John doesn't, or the adulterous woman does not belong here. So here's what, here's what we're going to do. So I come to this text, say it's not in the original. There's no good reason to believe that it actually is inspired writing. At least there's no compelling reason. So what do I do? Do I preach it anyway? What a lot of pastors do. A lot of pastors do. One of my favorite, R.C. Sproul, great preacher, great theologian, goes through some of the same kind of things I just did when he preached it and said, but I think it belongs, so I'm going to preach it anyway. And then he preached it anyway. Uh, I, I can't in good conscience do that uh, because I want to preach to you the word of God, and if I think something is not the word of God, then I'm not going to preach it to you. Now, you may say, I believe it belongs in the Bible and still treat it as inspired, and you have my blessing. There's nothing in the story that contradicts anything else in the Bible. That's fine. But I cannot, in good conscience, preach it as though it is the Word of God. So what am I supposed to do? Well, I can wrap it up early. <laughs> no amens. No, 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 no. But I thought I would take this opportunity to explain to you some aspects of how we came to have our Bible. We're not going to talk about the adulterous woman this morning, but I do want you, I hope you will come away more confident than ever that the scripture is trustworthy and true because the evidence is astounding. So we're going to talk a little bit this morning about textual criticism. Again, if you're visiting with, with us, this is not how I normally preach, not the kind of thing we normally do. Uh, so come back next week and we'll get back into the text. But I want to talk about textual criticism. There are, in, in historical scholarship, there are two types of criticism when it comes to the scripture. One is called higher criticism. Have you heard of higher criticism? Higher criticism, uh, if, again, if you study these things, 18th, 19th, 20th century German liberalism is largely uh, correlated here. Higher criticism is bad news. Stay away. What higher critics do is higher critics take the Bible and they decide that they can determine what was actually written and said based on their understanding of what God would have said. So they put themselves higher than the text. And those of you who have seen the Truth Project, remember that? We did that years ago here at FRAG, and the youth are going through it now. 
at least were recently, uh, talks about the Jesus Seminar. They were a very popular group of higher critics. And the Jesus Seminar, they, for instance, evaluated the Lord's Prayer. And by reasoning with their own minds what would have been said and done by Jesus, they reduced the Lord's Prayer to our Father. Everything else in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus didn't say it. And of course, the virgin birth is out, the resurrection is out, all the supernatural, the miracles, those are all out because those things can't happen. People can't come back from the dead. So the higher critics came along and said, none of this stuff is true. The resurrection of Jesus was the resurrection of his spirit, of his, of his mantra, of, his, of his, uh, his message. And so what the disciples meant by the resurrection was, we're going to carry on the things that we heard from Jesus. But the actual death of Jesus and resurrection didn't happen because that doesn't happen. So that's higher criticism. Run away. Stay far, far away from higher criticism. It's saying, I can decide what's in the Word of God. Then there's what's called lower criticism, or I think more helpfully, textual criticism. This is very good. Textual criticism takes those manuscripts and tries to help us figure out what really is the Word of God. These guys had a very high view of Scripture and wanted to help the church figure out what really we should be looking at and reading. So let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, again, the New Testament was written in Greek. Most of you don't read Greek. There's a few of you that do read Greek. At least you're learning to read Greek. Some of you have another semester starting tomorrow in Greek. Can I get an amen, gentlemen? Can't wait. I will get your semester two finals back to you this week, so maybe you'll start semester three tomorrow. Uh, the printing press was not invented until the 15th century. Following me? 15th, 15th century is when we finally got the printing press. Prior to the invention of the Gutenberg press and its predecessors, Every copy of the Bible had to be made by hand. That was quite a process. Quite a process indeed. So the, the first Greek New Testament, so this is English, but the first Greek New Testament printed with the printing press was in 1516. It's the version by Desiderius Erasmus. For those of you guys who have studied Reformation in history, Erasmus printed the first Greek New Testament by the printing press. Prior to that, it was all done by hand. Scribes did it. And here's kind of how the process went. Uh, let's say, uh, so you got a copy of John's original gospel. And you thought more people need to read this. And you had some money. You would hire some scribes. And they would gather in this room that would be called the scriptorium. And so one person would be the dictator, not like, you know, the king, but the one who did dictation. He would, he would say, he would read John's manuscript, and then however many you could afford, whatever amount the patron who gave money and said, okay, let's make copies. If he could afford three scribes, and there would be three scribes there, and the three scribes would sit on a stool... And they'd be with the, the, the parchment or uh, papyrus on their lap. We'll talk about that in a minute. And they'd sit here and they would listen to the dictation and they would write. Six hours at a time. 
that's a lot of work. Can you imagine sitting like this, six hours at a time, listening to someone uh, speak the words? Uh, they wrote them on either papyrus or parchment. And what's great in our days, you can look up how they make these things on YouTube videos, like papyrus is fascinating. Uh, they, they, they cut, uh, whoever, who decided to do this, right? They, this plant, this papyrus plant, they would cut it up into strips and, and soak it and get all the sugars out of things, and then they would put a huge rock on top of it for days to press it down, so they'd have strips going this way, and then strips going this way, and they'd press it down, and after several days of this, and they did some other things to it, you have this very strong papyrus, kind of, kind of a paper, you know, stronger than paper, and they would start writing on it. And they would glue page to page to page into the form of a scroll. Uh, about the longest of the books were 35 feet long. Uh, this is probably why Luke wrote two volumes, by the way. We have his Gospel of Luke, and we have Acts, both written by Luke. Uh, it was just too long. If you, if you put Luke on, on a scroll, it's going to be 35 feet long. They didn't make them longer than that, so that's why probably he, he broke it up into two separate books. Uh, little, another little pop quiz here. Do you remember there was something unique about the scroll that John saw in his vision in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation? Do you remember what was unique about that scroll? Well, it had seals. That wasn't unique. All, all the scrolls had seals. It was edible. Okay, maybe, I think you might be confusing him with another prophet. What, do you remember what it said about the scroll? It had writing on both sides. Who said that? Troy, way to go, Troy. That was unique. Most of the time they only wrote on one side because if you, if you think back again to the, the strips going one way, it would be hard to write on the other side where the strips are going this way, right? Can you visualize that? All the, all the strips going this way would be hard to write on that. But on legal documents, especially last will and testaments, they would write on both sides if necessary. Why? Because they couldn't take the risk that the scroll might be torn apart and you'd miss the other side because you can think about how important the last will and testament is, right? Uh, especially if you're the heirs, the recipients. Well, what's, what is that scroll that John sees the, the angel holding? Remember, he weeps because no one was worthy to open the scroll. It's God's last will and testament. It is the unpacking of what God is going to do for his people. And John realizes if nobody is worthy to unwrap this, then God's plan is not going to be unveiled. That's the vision. That's the idea there. And it had writing on both sides. That shows it was a legal document. So that's free information. You don't have to pay me for that today. Uh, but they would write just on one side uh, on, the, on this, parch on this uh, papyrus. Uh, the other kind of material they wrote on originally was parchment, skins of animals. And they would scrape it, scrape it, scrape it, scrape it, and do their, their thing. And then they would write on parchment. So that's, that's what they had to do. The, the, one guy would dictate, the scribes would make their copies, and they'd roll them up, and they'd send them off and give them to people, that kind of thing. There are almost 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts in existence today. Almost 6,000, just shy. That is far and away beyond the number of any other ancient work. 
works like uh, of Aristotle, the Homer's Iliad, if you, if you ever read any of that, uh, Julius Caesar's commentaries, war and all those things. There are almost, you know, there's one or two copies of some of those works that are 10 or 12 centuries after the fact. And we have a fragment of John that goes way back to either the end of the first century or the beginning of the second century. Overwhelming number of Greek manuscripts that are known today. But there are variations among them. Scribes made errors when they were copying. And we can totally understand why this would be, right? I'm dictating, and you are the scribe. Six hours. Six hours you have to sit and write what you hear me say. What are the chances that we're going to get 300 precise copies of everything that I say for the next six hours? Anybody want to venture a guess of what chances are? <laughs> Zero, right? Because I'm going to speak imprecisely somewhere, and you're going to write it down wrong. Or you're going to hear imprecisely. That's more likely. Just making sure you're listening. Uh, or your mind's going to wander, and you're going to think you know what I said. Or you're going to think you, you know what I'm going to say, right? At least one person in this room thinks she knows what I'm going to say before I say it. <laughs> and so you're just going to finish the sentence. One of the things that would happen as more uh, manuscripts got spread around is that the scribe would fill in what they think the person should have said. For example, in Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, how does it begin? Our Father, Lord in heaven. Yeah, you got this, right? That's Matthew's account. Now, you all know that. So imagine that I was dictating to you Luke's account, and I said, Father, hallowed be thy name. And you're thinking, whoa, 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 wait, Doug must have just skipped over some of the most important parts. So you as the scribe might fill in the gaps. And so now we've got some of you are rule followers, and so you write down exactly what I say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Some of you think you're better than me, and that I must have made a mistake, and you fill in from what you know of Matthews, and you put our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And now we have two copies that you heard from the same source. One says, Father, hallowed be thy name. The other one says, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. See how that could work? And so you had this kind of thing that would go on. Or a scribe, well, let me finish. So, so after the work was done, then there was someone uh, whose ancestors are Krista's ancestors who go through and they're grammar Nazis. If you know my wife, she is, uh, if you ever say or write anything that is incorrect grammatically, I hear about it. Jordan Goodrich, I'm looking at you, man. Where are you, Jordan? Yeah, sorry, she was, she, she, I got a note. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, believe me, the, the ride home on Sunday afternoons are just not fun. So, <laughs> so someone would go back and correct the errors. So their job was to read the original, read the copy, and find errors. And so when they found an error, they would make a little note in the margin. 
and say, oh, this is wrong here, this is wrong there. So that becomes part of the manuscript and it goes out. Well, so the next scribe or the next dictator has that note and they're not sure now all the time whether this marginal note is supposed to be part of the original text or if it's just a note about the original text, right? So now you've, the next person who copies has to make a decision, is this, am I supposed to put this, should I just put this in the main body now or is this supposed to be a note? And so you've got some differences because of that kind of thing. It's fascinating to read some of these uh, the scribes. At the end, they started writing what was called the colophon. They would, they would write sort of their end notes. And what became very common were the scribes would put, that is the end of the book. Thanks be to God. <laughs> it makes you wonder, were they saying praise God or thank you, God, I'm done, right? That kind of thing. One guy wrote, you all think that it's just three fingers that do this work, but in fact, when one scribes, the whole body is, is at work, and he described how there was a raging storm outside, and it was so cold that the ink froze, and his hands froze, and the pen actually fell out of his hand. It was so cold. This is the labor I have to go through to write this stuff. And, and their whole bodies would be affected because it's hard to sit hunched over with that kind of concentration hour after hour after hour. So it's, it's fascinating to read some of these uh, end notes. But there would, the scribes would do that. They would, they, would take, uh, they would make notes to try to help, or sometimes they would try to explain something. They thought, you know, the, the average reader is going to read this, and they're not going to understand what it means, so I'm going to write a little note over here in the margin that helps the next person understand what it means. Well, then the next scribe or, or dictator reads that, and again, he has to make a decision. Does this belong in the text? Is that a correction, or is that just a note? And now he's got to make a decision. And so as time goes on, copy after copy is made, you see those kinds of uh, variances among the manuscripts. I want to show you how this works even in our own day. Open your Bibles again to, Luke cha or to John chapter 7. So last week in our text, we covered uh, the last half of chapter 7. And if you remember from on verse 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now verse 39, but of this he spoke of the spirit, I'm sorry, but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were yet to receive for the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. If you have the new American standard, which you should. If you have the NASB here, you will notice that the, there's something unique about the word given. What is it? It's italicized. Do you know why that word is italicized? It's not in the original. If you read your opening notes of your NAS, the explanatory notes, they will tell you when you find an italicized word in your NAS, it's not there for emphasis, right? That's how we typically use italics today. It's not there for emphasis. It's there to show you this was not in the original text. So what are the NAS translators doing? They're doing a little bit of interpretation for you. Because the Greek actually says the Holy Spirit was not yet. Why would they feel like they need to put in the word given? 
Because you might read that, this Holy Spirit was not yet, and you might come to the conclusion the Holy Spirit did not exist yet. Right? So the NAS wants to make sure you don't come to that, to that conclusion, so they add the word given. Now, if you're reading your NAS on your uh, version Bible app, it does not include italics. So what if you were hired to translate the NAS into French, and all you had was the U version, English version? You would assume the word given is to be translated, right? Because it's in the text that you have. And now you have created a French version that includes a word that the original does not. But your intentions are pure. Your, your goal is to help the next person understand what's being said here. Well, the Greeks did the same thing. In fact, with that very text, there's the word spirit in the best and oldest manuscripts. As, uh, it says the spirit was not yet. But then we find a few later ones that say the spirit was not yet given. And some say the Holy Spirit was not yet and some say the Holy Spirit was not yet given. It's like the scribes are saying, well, we don't want anybody to confuse what spirit this is, so we're going to add holy, so everybody knows it's the Holy Spirit. We want them to know it was given, not that it came into existence. And you find all these different manuscripts with all of those things. So the textual critics, as they compare all of these different manuscripts, their starting place is, what is the hardest, and har the hardest to accept version? Well, there's nothing difficult about accepting John writing the Holy Spirit was not yet given. It's harder to accept that he just stopped with not yet. And so they, rash, they reasonably think, okay, that's more likely the original. There's another fascinating example of this. Turn to Acts chapter 20. All right, I'm trying not to shift into seminary professor mode here, but oh man, there's such great stuff. I think it's great anymore. Put me in the nerd camp if you want. Acts chapter 20, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the elders of Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, he's talking to the elders in Ephesus. And in verse 28, Paul says this to those elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of... Does anybody have anything other than God there? Somebody has the Lord? What do you have? Uh, no, that can't be true. That's a really bad translation. That's true. Get rid of that one. <laughs> Church of God, someone has a footnote, Lord. Okay. There are Greek manuscripts. Some of them have God. Some of them have Lord. Why? Well, look at the next phrase, which he purchased with his own blood. If the original is God, that's a head scratcher. Does God have blood? No, shake your head like this. No, God does not have blood. So some manuscripts have the church of the Lord. Some have the church of God and Lord. Some have church of God and Lord Jesus. Some have church of Lord Jesus Christ, and some just church of Jesus Christ. So the, the textual critics look at this and say, okay, which one is the hardest one? It's 
clearly God, right? And you can understand why somebody, why a scribe would replace God with Lord or with Christ or with Jesus Christ because they're trying to help the readers understand the one we're talking about is Jesus because we don't think about God having blood. There's no rational explanation for someone going from Jesus to God when you talk about his blood. So that's the kind of thing that the textual critics do is they look at all the evidence, all the manuscripts and say, all right, what's the hardest reading? What is the shortest reading? What, is, uh, what makes the most sense in all these different passages? And that's what they do to try to work their way back. Now, you may ask this question. For instance, with respect to the woman caught in adultery, let's just do this. Well, duh, let's just go to the version that John wrote, Right? Wouldn't that be great? Tomorrow I'm gonna get on a plane, I'm gonna fly to Omaha, Nebraska. No, 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 you can't come with me, nope. I know you'd all like to come, but can't come with me. And part of my job there this week will be to interview men who are pursuing pastoral ministry. I'm on the licensing and ordaining council for our district. And so we will ask them hard theological and biblical questions. I love this. And one of the questions we will ask them is, what do you believe about the doctrine of inerrancy? And the answer they better give back is, we believe, I believe, that the Bible is inerrant as it was originally given. Or they can use the word if they're fancy. We believe the autographs are inerrant. What we believe in the alliance, and most Christians do, that the scripture as it was originally written was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and there are no errors. That sounds great. We don't have any of the autographs. We don't have any of the original documents. None. Zero, zilch, nada. So you can't just go back and say, oh, here's the copy that John wrote. Does it have the woman caught in adultery or not? Because it doesn't exist. So we are left to take all of these different manuscripts and compare them and try to figure out what did John actually write as we go. Oh, there's so many different things. Uh, they, the criteria they used, uh, the date, the location, the context, the consistency. Is there anything here that fights against other teaching and that kind of thing? The bottom line is we cannot be absolutely certain in every case where there are variances. We have to come at this with some humility and say, this makes the most sense, but we could be wrong. All right, so let me wrap this up. When you count up all of the variances of the thousands of manuscripts that we have, there is less than 1% variance. Can you imagine that? I, I am absolutely certain if you all were scribes to what I was saying, we could not get down to 1% variance in this room today, <laughs> much less over hundreds of years. Less than 1%. That should blow your mind. It blows my mind. We're talking varieties spreading out geographically and over generations. Most of the scribes in the history of the church who've done this had great care and concern to preserve the Word of God. Now, there are a few loose cannons out there, but it's pretty obvious that they didn't care about that. Second point, 
there is not one single major belief that we hold that is affected by any of the variances. None. I mean, again, look at the woman caught in adultery. That story could be authentic. There's nothing in that that causes us to say, no, that fights against everything else in the New Testament. There's no way Jesus would say that or they would say that or say that kind of thing. It's consistent. So what's the bottom line for us as we think about this? You can trust your Bible. God in his providence has preserved what we need to know and believe. You can trust it. Occasionally, we did this in the, at the, 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 the pool of Siloam, right? I told you there's that one, one verse where an angel of the Lord used to come down and stir up the waters and whoever got in would be healed. And I told you that's not in the best manuscripts. I don't think that belongs. There's no major doctrine there. That's a, a side issue. The, the things that matter most, there is no question, thousands upon thousands of manuscripts over generations and spread throughout the entire Eastern world and into the West, they're consistent. When you read your New Testament, you can trust that you have the Word of God. Why does that matter? It's not ultimately about the book. What does this book tell us? Jesus of Nazareth is God's son. Jesus of Nazareth was born to a virgin woman. Jesus of Nazareth did not sin a single time in his life. Jesus of Nazareth went to the cross and died there in your place, and he said, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. He died, and on the third day he rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits right now. He sent his Holy Spirit upon his church at the day of Pentecost, and he's coming back to this planet someday. All of that is contained in the New Testament, and it is historically provable as much as anything historically is provable. You can take that to the bank. It is trustworthy and true. And God has taken great pains to make sure that what we have is the hope of eternal life. We build our life on Jesus, the Jesus revealed in the New Testament, and we have eternal life. We've seen this in John. He said, whoever hears my words and believes them will have everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, read, read, read your scripture and trust it. Our hope is contained in this. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you praise and thanks this morning. You love us so much. You love your son so much that you have made sure that his story has been written down thousands upon thousands of times and it's been written down accurately and you've protected it and preserved it so that today we can hold in our hands and our phones, we can read the word of the living God. Make us great students, not to be Bible nerds, not to be smarter than somebody else, but to have eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name.